It was Friday the 13th. I do remember that. We got a phone call from a detective in the Plano Police Department who said he had picked up our case and knew we were missing some jewelry. Would we be uh, available to come in that afternoon to look at some pictures? So my wife and I got in the car. We drove to the Plano Police Department. We're in an interview room with the detective and he's showing pictures. And it's a lot of pictures, hundreds. Does this look like your mom's jewelry? And in the midst of this, he's talking about this Shamir Mir arrest and that a lot of these pictures came off of Shamir Mir's phones that they had found. And my wife looks at me and goes, wait a minute. So are you telling us that you believe that Shamir Mir killed Carolyn? And he says, oh, I'm certain of it. He was there and I'm certain he killed her. Welcome back to The Perfect Scam. I'm your host, Bob Sullivan, and this is part three of our four-part series, Fatal Ageism, in connection with AARP, the magazine. It's April 2017, about a month since Billy Shamirmir was arrested at his apartment after police see him toss away a jewelry box that belongs to Lou T. Harris. Soon after, they go to Harris's home and find her dead. Almost immediately, investigators start linking Shamirmir to unattended deaths and jewelry thefts all around the Dallas area. Hundreds of cases, deaths previously determined to be from natural causes, are reopened. Carolyn McPhee, found dead in her home on New Year's Eve a few months earlier, is near the top of that list. Her son Scott has been insistent that mom's wedding ring and other valuables had been stolen even though police initially dismissed his concerns. But now, there's a murder investigation. Scott and his wife are talking to the lead detective on the case. So now we're having a conversation about this Shamir Mir guy. He'd been down to the Dallas County Jail interviewing this guy. He said, yeah, the guy kept saying something about Grace World. And my wife goes, you mean Griswold? And we explained that Griswold is the name of the agency that was placing people in our parents' home. Now, I've seen pictures. I didn't recognize him, right? And I'm like, but I don't know a Billy Shamirmir. And he goes, well, he goes by an alias, Benjamin Koitaba. Benjamin Koitaba? That name doesn't ring a bell either, but... Lots of people had been through Mom's house in the past couple of years. After decades working as one of the original IBMers back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Scott's dad had developed a rare and heartbreaking neurological disease. It presented a bit like Lou Gehrig's disease. His mind was fine, but his body started to waste away. He's a huge hulk of a man, and pretty quickly it's obvious Mom needs help with everyday tasks, like getting Dad into bed at night. So they turn to a home health care agency. Over the months and years that follow, while there are a few regulars, dozens of aides come for the daily 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. shift to help mom. Fortunately, Scott has records to refer to. By this time, we've cleared out my mom's house. We've sold the house. I've destroyed most of the records that we needed. I mean, I've, I've done all of the, how do you unwind someone's life? I had nothing left. I had one, I had one thing left. And don't ask me why I have it. It's a God thing. I had all the records that mom had kept for all the caregivers that had been in the house since she 
contracted Griswold all the way through to her death. So I had everything. So I'm coming back here now with the last remaining thing out of, out of her house, digging through records, finding, oh, look, Benjamin, Benjamin Koitaba was here these days and these days and these days and these days and made that connection from those records. Indeed, back in October 2016, a man calling himself Benjamin Koitaba shows up as a fill-in home healthcare aide. Around that very time, Norma French, Glenda Day, and Doris Gleason are all found dead at Tradition Prestonwood, not far away from Carolyn's home in Dallas. During the next three months, Koitaba would be in the McPhee home three or four days a week. He is competent and on time, but otherwise different from the other aides. When you have these people that come in your house, they become almost part of your extended family. You got to know them. They were there 12 hours a day. They're in your life. They're having breakfast with you. They're having lunch with you. They're having dinner with you. On holidays, they'd be, they, I mean, some of those, those folks we got to know because they'd be here on Christmas Day and enjoy Christmas with us. They'll go off and read in another room or whatever, but they tend to be integrated. And the thing that we, we remember about Benjamin Koitaba in the home is that wasn't him. He was distant, disconnected. He didn't take meals. He'd go in the other room. He didn't sit with the family, sit with people watching. He was always off on his own. He was a little bit of a loner. By January of 2017, Koitaba has moved on to another assignment. And Scott's dad, his health rapidly declines. He passes away in April. Some of the aides, not Koitaba, come to the funeral. It takes a while, but after this four-year ordeal of taking care of dad, mom starts to move on and enjoy life again. Yeah, you know, she was. it was a hard time. I mean, of course, they'd been married for 50-some years. My dad's goal was to make, make 60 years of marriage, and, and he, he didn't quite make that. You know, you lose, you lose someone you've spent basically the majority of your life with. That's hard. And, and, but she also struggled with, and she and I talked a lot about the fact that the memories that she had of him were the memories from the end, right? When he was struggling and where he was, you know, emaciated and, and not himself physically, and that she was having a hard time kind of getting past those and going back and remembering who our, our father was before the disease took him, right? But other than that, I mean, she, she is living at home. She is redecorating the house. She's re-engaging with friends. She's going to church, which was always an important part of their lives. And, and they spent so much time there. She was, she was in life, right? She wasn't at home mourning and letting that control her. She was taking control of it and, and working to rebuild and move on with her life. And she had plenty of it left to go, trust me. She was a force of nature. A force of nature that is suddenly gone. On New Year's Eve day, so December 31st of 2017, my family, we were at lunch and I, I got a phone call or a text message from some of my mother's church friends who said that they, they weren't able to get a hold of her. And this was, you know, noonish on, uh, on Sunday after, after church that she hadn't shown up for church and that she was supposed to be at their house right then to watch the Cowboys game, of course, because that was also central to their lives, the Dallas Cowboys. 
So, so you know, we we started worrying about it, and I called Rob, called my brother. He was he was off, and and I I had moved my mother's phone cell phone service over onto my account just just to make it easier so i knew what technology she had and so i could i could see that her phone was still at the house and, and she was not answering it so i called rob we all we all jumped in the car we all rushed to her house the front door was locked they they had a key went in the house and found mom in her bedroom on the floor uh, in in a prone position arm over her eyes glasses askew and, and obviously deceased. The family calls 911 and police come to examine the scene. They find a few small bloodstains on the door handle on her glasses, but pretty quickly they determine mom died of natural causes. The detective came out and said that, that they also did kind of a, a physical exam and they didn't see any signs of trauma. There were bloody tissues in her bathroom on the, on the floor. And that was, you know, they, they kind of... I asked about that, and the detective was explaining that what they believed had happened was she had gotten ready for church, right? She was ready to go, looked like she was leaving, and they believed she'd gotten in the car, maybe began to have an aneurysm, had a nosebleed. That's why there was blood on the outside of the door because she touched the door. That's why there were bloody tissues. So they, she had cleaned herself up, and then as she was walking back to leave, she just, the aneurysm struck and that she just instantly died right there and fell to the floor and talked to the medical examiner on the phone. They explained it. He says, that's as good an explanation as any. And they kind of just were done. That was the end. And, and they released, we released the body to the mortuary. And, and that was basically the end of that day. That explanation seems reasonable enough to Scott and his family. You're in such shock. Your brain, your brain's not really working. You kind of go into a little bit of a tunnel focus. And, and, and in that time, you're trusting that these people who do this every day are, are taking you on the path. And I did have a pretty good conversation with the detective to try to make sure that, that I had assurance that what he was saying was valid, right? And, and it, it made logical sense at the time. It makes perfect sense. It, it didn't make sense in the fact that we knew just a couple of weeks before she'd been at the doctor and gotten a clean bill of health, but she was still 82 years old and you just never know, you know, as, as you age, things just break. It, it seemed like a reasonable explanation at the time. But that time doesn't last very long. Within days, the family has questions about missing jewelry. So over the course of the next day or two, when we started, we realized that she did not have her wedding ring on. And we thought that was, I mean, that was odd because she never took her wedding ring off. This was, it's the same ring she'd worn their entire marriage. So that ring was a fixture. I actually asked the detective about it that day. And he said that, that generally, if you wear a ring, it leaves an indentation. He didn't see an indent on her finger. So he doesn't believe that she'd even had it on that day. I'm like, oh, that doesn't make any sense, but fine, right? You're the detective. Mm-hmm. So what we started to realize over the course of the next few days is that ring was missing. We couldn't find it. And that there was a fashion ring, a diamond fashion ring that she also wore a lot that we also couldn't find. That there was a jacket that she had been wearing because it was cold, right? This is coming into January, you know, late, late December, early January timeframe, New Year's. It was cold here. My younger son had taken her out to dinner for the Saturday night before. 
She'd worn this black puffy jacket that she liked to wear. He dropped her at the house Saturday night. That jacket was nowhere to be found in the house. We thought that was odd. So I'm going back now to the Plano Police Department, to this detective, and saying, I need an explanation. Where, where is the jewelry? Where is her jacket? Because this it doesn't make any sense. And the explanation I started getting from the detective was, oh, you know, she was old. Old people hide their jewelry. I'm sure it's somewhere around there. Look, you know, look through all her boxes. Maybe it fell in the P-trap, literally. Maybe it fell, you know, in the sink and it's in the P-trap. So I was, I'm starting to get uncomfortable (laughs) with the explanations. I'm starting to think we had all these people coming through the house. We had the firemen show up, the ambulance people show up, the police show up, the the detectives show up, the photographers. There were probably 15 or more individuals who traipsed in and out of that room. And I'm starting to talk to this detective going, I'm telling you, someone stole these rings because they are gone. Someone stole those rings. There has to be an explanation. About 10 weeks later, Scott wakes up and opens the Dallas Morning News and thinks he's found his explanation. I'm going to say it was around March 23rd. So the Dallas Morning News shows up at my house on that Saturday morning, and there's a big front page article about this man named Billy Shamirmir, who had just been arrested in Plano, holding the jewelry of a, of a woman named Lou T. Harris, who was a Dallas resident, who they had found dead. I'm reading this article, and I immediately got up and I emailed that detective and said, this has to be the explanation. This guy, I mean, it all fit. Killed killed an elderly woman, arranged it to look like a natural death, stole some of her jewelry that he was planning to go off and hawk. This is the only explanation. So... We, we phone, played phone tag a little bit, and then he sort of went dark. Then, a few weeks later, a different police officer, the detective investigating Shamir Mir's case, calls the family in for a meeting. And that's how Scott finds himself on April 13th, Friday the 13th, staring at pictures of stolen jewelry from Billy Shamir Mir's phone, learning that Benjamin Koitaba was really Billy Shamir Mir and that a suspected serial killer was in his mom's house almost daily for three months, probably at the same time he was out killing other older people, and that Shamirmir knew his dad had died, knew mom would be alone, and that he killed her on New Year's Eve. The logical part of you is going, the only logical thing is this guy must have killed mom, but you don't really process that until that time later when it's confirmed, right? And you have a detective going, oh yeah, we pinged him with his cell phone. Your grieving process starts all over again because by this time, think about it, we've, we're now four months in, three and a half months in to accepting the fact that uh, you know, we found our mother dead, uh, believing that she had died instantly, painlessly, and, and, and had like buried, we were done, right? We had started to move on to that. It was the question of where the jewelry went that we're dealing with. And all of a sudden now, all of that is opened up again. Your whole life gets turned upside down in that moment. 
Shamirmir is in jail, initially held on an outstanding arrest warrant for another crime. By May, he's indicted for attempted murder and held in lieu of paying $1 million bond. And as detectives keep pulling the threads of evidence they find, there are many more conversations to come that turn families' lives upside down. Here's Lauren Adair, whose mother, Phyllis Payne, was found dead in the Edgemere Independent Living Facility about two years earlier. I was sitting in my den in the house, and I got a phone call, a number I didn't recognize, which I normally don't really answer on my cell phone, but for some reason I, I answered it, and it was a detective, and he, he's, he asked me if I had heard of the Billy Shamirmir case and a man that was that they had discovered had murdered some elderly people and stolen from them. And I had not heard the news. And so I said, no, no, what are you talking about? And he said, well, we're sure that your mother was one of his victims. And so I was shocked and appalled. And, you know, it'd been two years that she died in May of 2016. And this was April of 2018. And so I, my immediate reaction was, if this is a joke, this is really sick. And I said that to him and he said, no, ma'am, this is my, let me give you my badge number, my phone number. We really need to come and speak with you. We would, we would like to come out to your home and speak with you. And at that point, I still didn't know who this was. And so I said, I will come to you. And he, so he gave me the address of the Dallas police station. I said, I would like to get a hold of my son. He said, we need you to come down to the station right away. And so I said, okay, I'm going to call my son. I'd like him to come with me. So I'm sorry, this is bringing it all back. There are other investigators racing to understand what happened, to find the truth about potentially hundreds of unexplained deaths in the Dallas area during Billy Shamirmir's reign of terror. One of them is Trey Crawford, who represents the family of Catherine Sinclair, also found dead at Edgemere in 2016. As he interviews other families whose parents have died recently, just investigating, sometimes the calls turn dark as children realize the awful truth about their mom's death. You know, we would try to locate the next of kin of these families just to further understand the facts and circumstances surrounding the victims that we were representing at the time. We would start by introducing ourselves, who we represent, and here's why we kind of need to talk to you, because you may know something that's helpful for one of our clients. And there was a number of times where we would have that call and a light bulb went off and you could tell through the phone, they knew right then that their mom was a victim too. Sharing that moment with families, it's an awful task. And in some cases, Trey calls with something more definitive in mind. To say, we have evidence that your mom was murdered, and we want to make sure you know. He has to place one of those horrific calls to MJ Jennings, whose mom, Leah Corkin, died in August 2016. So my husband is double board certified in orthopedics and sports medicine. It was a Wednesday night, December 12th, and I was not feeling well, but he had just found out he passed his board recertification. So we went to our favorite steakhouse, Chamberlain's, and we were walking in, sitting down, ready to celebrate. And I get a phone call. Well, I never answer a call that 
I don't know who the number is, but they left a message. So I'm sitting there and I'm reading this message and it says that we, I think it is implied that we have reason to believe that there was suspicion or were you suspicious about your mother's death? And I'm reading this going, what are you talking about? And it was from our attorney, Trey Crawford. And I ran outside the front door of the restaurant and called him back and said, what are you talking about? And they said, we have reason to believe that your mom is a victim of serial killer, Billy Shamir Muir. And with that, I don't think he got another word in edgewise. I started telling him of all these images that I had in my head that were disturbing, but never murder, that it was like flashbulbs clicking with images of, oh my God, this now makes sense. It makes sense. She was one of his victims. And that was as I said, the pain of losing my dad to pancreatic cancer was the worst thing I'd ever had to experience because I physically was with him when he was in so much pain. This, no one under, you know, I hate to say this, but when your loved one is a murder victim, it is so surreal and out of body experience. Like, you know, I'm on a, I'm on a, program i'm on a tv show but it's what you watch but it doesn't happen to you and so my poor husband we couldn't celebrate and i just remember getting in the car and getting my brother and sister on the speakerphone and telling him i'm sure i just screamed mom was murdered cheryl kerr's mom was glenna day from that fourth floor at tradition prestonwood the party floor she got the news from the police the detective called me and he he was asking me questions and he thought she died on Sunday. And I said, no, I, I said, I don't think so. And here's why. And I told him exactly what I thought and which day she died and what time. And he said, "Ooh, I need to call you back. And so he hung up. And about 15 minutes later, he called back and he said, I have some evidence that would indicate that this was not a natural death. When you got that call, uh, were you aware that Shamir Mir had been arrested earlier? Were you, oh, no. No, no, none of it. What was that like to get that? It seems almost... Besides horrific? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, because it's like unbelievable, right? I mean... I don't even know if there's a word. He was like, are you sure? You got to... It's got to be somebody else. Ellen House French learns the awful truth about her mom, Norma French, from a conversation. It was a coincidence. Ellen's sister had a friend who turned out to be a neighbor and witness to another death tied to Shamir Mir. The neighbor, Joy, and Ellen's sister were having lunch one day when detectives called Joy away from the table. And so she called my sister later and said, okay, this is so weird. Like, they think they have somebody who's stealing jewelry and hurting the elderly. Anyway, so my sister was thinking in the back of her head, okay, that's weird because my mom's jewelry was stolen so joy had mentioned that about my sister to the investigator and he said have your friend call me so my sister called me and he said is your mother norma french and she said yes and he said well she's on the top of our list we were going to call you later today the news is really 
really hard to take. It is such a unbelievable emotional experience to go through a murder. It was hard to get it in my head. I'm like, well, maybe she wasn't one of them. But of course, that's when I didn't know either that there were eight other deaths, but there were nine later. And I would talk to investigators and he would give me information about Chamurmur and how, you know, he had been in buildings so many times and he made $90,000 and so many months and that this was just his job. He, you know, and so he said that there were others in the building. And Diana Tannery, she learns the awful truth about her mom Juanita Purdy's death from a different lawyer. Well, I got a call from my mother's probate lawyer, which was kind of weird. And he even said, this is my first, I don't know how to tell you, but I've had a lawyer reach out to me and they think that your mother was was murdered. And I was like, I knew it, I knew something was up. And they said, they want to know if they can talk to me. I said, yes, they can talk to me. And then so I, I contacted the lawyer and then found out that there's several people that were killed. There was more people. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today. As time goes by, the list of victims keeps growing. Shamir Mayer is indicted for 11 murders in May 2019. A June lawsuit alleges there's even more victims at Tradition Prestonwood. There's more lawsuits than more indictments. And as the prosecution continues to build its case, the victims start to find each other. Well, it's a puzzle. It, it was a puzzle piece. The first thing you do is find it. You see this victim list and I see all these people. You start Googling. I mean, I would be up till two, three in the morning Googling all these victims. I'm like, oh, there's. And I'm sure my attorney told me there were eight victims in three and a half months at Tradition Prestonwood. And then a couple of us, we just become detective mode where we're trying to reach out to other victims. And I, I think I reached out to Shannon Gleason because she had written a Yelp review that said, it's beautiful, except, you know, unless you want to get murdered. And so I, I found her and and then I found Ellen French House. And then pretty soon we're all meeting and it's it's just so surreal. It's It's like he murdered how many there? How many there? And how many there? How many? The victim families keep working the case. So then I started investigating myself, Googling, doing whatever I could do. And I had this little law website that I can get on. And a lawsuit popped up, Doris Gleason. And I just looked at it and I thought, oh my gosh, there's another one. And so I Googled, I, faced, I looked up daughter's Facebook and just to see what she looked like. And then I looked at my little white pages premium and I got her phone number and I called her and I left a message 
and then she called me back and when I left a message I just said hi this is Ellen French house and my mom was normally French she lived at the same place that your mother did and I think we may have the same circumstances but by this point you were all finding each other Mm -hmm. God because it has been just so much help to actually have someone to talk to that has been through the exact same thing. Ultimately, Shamir Mayer is indicted for 22 counts of murder and two additional counts of attempted murder. There are the usual legal delays, and COVID slows down the wheels of justice too. So to ensure he gets to prison as soon as possible, prosecutors decide to bring a case forward for one count, the death of Lou T. Harris. Shamir Mir's defense says all the evidence that he's the murderer is circumstantial. But when the trial opens in November 2021, more than three years after Shamir Mir's initial arrest, prosecutors claim it's an open and shut case. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a case about stalking, smothering, and stealing. Last Wednesday, when we talked to y'all, it was mentioned a couple of times that this is going to be a difficult chore on your part. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think it's going to be that difficult. You just heard what I have to prove to you in that indictment. I have to prove that that man right there, Billy Chamirmir, caused the death of Lou T. Harris by smothering and then stole from her. Chamirmir is a cold killer, a sociopath, the prosecutor argues. That's obvious from the way he talks with investigators after his arrest. Did he even ask who died? Did he even want to know the name of the person who died so that he could say, wait, is it my neighbor? Is it someone I've come into contact with? He just says, no, I've never been anywhere. Never been at Preston Place. Never been near Lou Harris's home on Warm Breeze. He didn't even think to ask who had died. Wouldn't that be normal to say, wait, you're charging me with murder of who? That's what a sociopath is, who is so easily able to separate what he's done from himself that that never even comes into his mind. The prosecution calls dozens of witnesses, including medical examiners who testify that Harris was smothered. And there's evidence presented from another unattended death, the death of Mary Brooks, who was found in her condominium only a few weeks before Harris. Shamir Mir stalked her at a nearby Walmart, then followed her to her home, the same way he stalked Lutey Harris. A witness testifies that cell phone records place Shamir Mir at the site of the murder. The jury's heard evidence that Mary Brooks, who was last seen a lot at Walmart on January 30th at 11.51, was found dead with her groceries still out, and a ring missing that was later linked to Billy Tremere's offer of account. What can you tell us about uh, the defendant's cell phone records in regards to 10 minutes after leaving that Walmart? It's the cell data is consistent with the cell phone being in the area of the victim's residence. The jurors also hear from medical examiner Dr. Jeffrey Barnard. Mary Brooks's death was not investigated, an autopsy not performed. That's common when there's an unattended death involving an older person, he says. Why? Well, we have 
somewhere around 9,000 or more cases that we don't bring in because otherwise we would end up with like 15,000 cases coming to the office. That's untenable. No office can handle that. So you have to make decisions based on those cases, the findings, and the medical history of which cases uh, rise to the level that they need to come in to be examined. So the scene that, as it was left that night left the police, experienced police officers, to believe nothing. there was no foul play and therefore you all had to treat it the way you would a normal situation where an elderly individual had passed away. That's correct. Shamir Mir hunted his victims, including Mary Bartell, who regained consciousness after an attempted murder and gave police a description of Shamir Mir, simply so he could sell their precious possessions for cash, the jury is told. Lou T. Harris's jewelry would have been sold too if Shamir Mir hadn't been arrested. He'd made a lot of money recently selling jewelry. We know that just like with Mary Brooks and Mary Bartell, if the police had not caught him discarding this jewelry and throwing stuff out at the dumpster, he would have been right back at Dallas and Gold Exchange just like he was in their two cases. Seemed like a lot of money right over time, $91,000 in transactions. That's the kind of money you can make if you don't have a job and all day you're out just hunting, hunting, hunting for someone to take advantage of. Billy Shamirmir was an experienced home health care aide. We know from Scott McPhee that he had at least the basic skills to do the job. So he knew how to make the crimes look innocent, look like natural deaths. He told his victims to lay down on their beds. So that's often where they'd be found. And worse, he knew how to use ageism to his advantage. That path and that pattern is shown that every time he finds a victim, he finds someone that if someone finds her dead, they're just going to think, well, she was 87. Things like that happen. Maybe she fell. Maybe her heart gave out. But then it's just like clockwork for him. Attack the person, kill the person, immediately they'll try to turn that over for a little bit of money. The prosecution rests its case and asks the jury to return a verdict that will put Billy Shamirmir in prison for the rest of his life. You know now that to him, the women who are matriarchs, who are grandmothers, who are focal points of a family, to him are just walking dollar signs. And that the jewelry that they wear that represents love and, and life and memories, to him, is just a way to get some quick cash. So think about when you're deliberating, how in the world is this a coincidence? When you have three different women who don't know each other, who don't know him, that Miss Bartell ends up attacked and left for dead, but thank God she lived. Miss Brooks killed in her home, and Miss Harris killed in her home. And the only really common factor among all three is that every time they're at Walmart, he's there, and that he's outside their house, and that their property ends up sold or about to be sold. His greed was more important to him than the life of Lou Harris. That's what the evidence has shown over these past few days. The judge read the charge to you, and all of it goes towards what is alleged in the indictment, that the defendant took the life of Lou Harris during the course of robbery and or burglary. You're not going to read that court's charge and see the name Mary Bartell or Mary Sue Brooks. 
But the law allows us to put on that evidence, and it was important for you to hear what happened to those two women. Why was it important? It's important because it shows that this isn't just a coincidence. If you just had the Lou Harris case, you might be tempted to say, well, maybe he just had her stuff, and that she died, or someone killed her, and that he just happened to have her property with him. But because you have the cases of Mary Bartell and Mary Sue Brooks to go along with it, you know now that when they were shopping in that Walmart, when they were running their errands, he was in his hunting grounds. You know now, because you've heard of all three women in their situations, that he picks out women he thinks are too weak to resist. The jury deliberates for an afternoon, then into an evening. It's a torturous time for the families. It was surreal. I mean, the evidence was the case. Prosecutor, they all did such a fabulous job. The defense didn't ask a lot of questions. They didn't. It was just we really thought it was a done deal. So when the jury was deliberating, and then when they sent us home to come back the next day, he's like, I don't feel good about this. And I said, I don't either. There's one note, then another, and another from the jury to the judge. The jury can't reach a unanimous verdict. The judge implores them to keep trying, but by midday, the result is in. A Dallas County judge declared a mistrial in the first capital murder case against accused serial killer Billy Shamirmir. The jury deadlocked 11 to 1 and said it could not reach a unanimous decision despite repeated urging from the judge. Fox News Alex Boy is at the Crowley Courthouse in Dallas. Alex? Yeah, Blake, a pretty incredible turn of events here today. Now, it all came down to one juror who could not be swayed. About 45 minutes into deliberations this morning, the foreman sent a note to the judge indicating one juror would not be deviating from their vote. The judge ordered them to keep deliberating. A short time later, the judge received another note saying they remain deadlocked 11 to 1. Um... Shocking. Just sitting dispassionately, listening to the evidence, looking at the evidence, listening to the stories, you go, there's no way this guy is is not guilty. And, and that you had one juror who's like, no, I don't believe it. I mean, none of us could. I mean, it was it was one of the most shocking moments of my life, honestly. You know, it was up there with finding your mother dead and finding out she was murdered, that there's somebody who could listen to all that and go, no, I don't think so. Unbelievable. I still can't get over it. We were stunned and again horrified that it, you know, that it was a mistrial because it was so clear. The evidence was so, so strong and clear that he had done this. And it was just one juror that held out. And so we couldn't believe it. And we, you know, we just could not believe that he was not convicted and that then there was going to, you know, this was going to start all over again and have another trial in a few months. So. And so you had to just go through the entire experience all over again. All over again. It was just, and then when they came in that first trial and that one lady was the one that screwed it all up and they, it was a mistrial because one person, you know, decided 
that he, you know, she wasn't sure or whatever. But, oh my God, it was the biggest letdown and we all cried and we all became like a big family, all of the family members that were there. And I mean, it was devastating. It was like, I was for sure, I mean, she would have been found guilty and then we had to go through it again. The prosecution announces it will move for a retrial as soon as possible. Still, it will take five months. Shamir Mir remains in jail. What happens to Shamir Mir at the next trial? Will anyone else have to pay for the crimes of Billy Shamir Mir? Will the families ever get justice? That's next week in the conclusion of our four-part series, Fatal Ageism. If you have been targeted by a scam or fraud, you are not alone. Call the AARP Fraud Watch Network helpline at 877-908-3360. Their trained fraud specialists can provide you with free support and guidance on what to do next. For this special report, we want to thank AARP The Magazine's Vice President and Editor-in-Chief Bob Love, Executive Editor Bill Horn, Investigative Journalist Lisa Olson, and researcher, fact-checker, Annette Deinzer. Thank you to our team of scam busters. Associate producer, Annalie Embry, researcher, Sarah Binney, executive producer, Julie Getz, and our audio engineer and sound designer, Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For AARP's The Perfect Scam, I'm Bob Sullivan. <laughs>